Bookers, come on down! You have stumbled upon a pot of word salad at the bottom of a sometimes inappropriate rainbow. At the controls are indie authors Sintra Sullivan, Kay Banning Kellum, and David Atherton Cooper. I'd like to say they know what they're doing, however, as the official voiceover guy, I have sworn an oath of fealty. Welcome to the What the Book podcast, where scripts and pants are optional. Hello, bookers. Welcome to this week's edition of What the Book. Uh, We've got your trio of hosts, of course. It's me, Sintra, and David, and Caleb. Hi, guys. Hi, how's it going? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, Caleb. Um, we are here today. Oh, gosh, one of my favourite things to be discussing, villains and heroes. Um, uh, look, we can't deny the fact that uh, I love a bad guy. I will always love a bad guy and will generally be rooting for the bad guy. Even that word rooting, it's such an American word. I don't even know why I chose it. Should I have chosen barracking or cheering? Because rooting in Australia, if you're rooting for the bad guys, <laughs> rooting in Australia is a whole different context. So it's funny when I'm when I'm this is so off topic, but when I'm reading the Twitter stuff and it comes up with oh I'm rooting for something, I'm just like, <laughs> okay, hey, dude. All right. <laughs> well, by all means, please please educate me. What does it mean when someone's rooting for someone in Australia? Okay, let's do um, root. Is to have a physical sexual congress with another person. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, see, I've always heard that pronounced like rutting or something along those lines. Rutting well, um, well, is when you do it energetically, but rooting is, <laughs> is getting out and fun. Yeah. So it's funny whenever I see somebody go, oh, you know, I'm rooting for you, I'm just like, wow, well, that is enthusiastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, I type that a lot. Oh, man. Okay. I might have to watch who I say that to from See, now, now okay. you're saying that to an Aussie, we're going, oh, you're kinky. I like it. <laughs> I'm rooting for you. <laughs> so, yeah, all right, the bad guy. What, what makes a bad guy? What do we love about bad guys? Who wants to start off? Caleb? Oh, well, you know what I think when you talk about the dynamics and, and everything between uh, your antagonists and your protagonists, I think what makes people like certain kinds of villains anyway is I think folks like the anti-villain um, kind of character just the same way people like the anti-hero kind of character. Um, so when you look at a character like Negan from The Walking Dead, who I'm a big fan of, I oh, love yes. him because he is, he is a humanized character um he's not just your standard ha 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 i'm gonna take over the world type of villain he's actually a person with a past and everything else and i think in my opinion anyway that the villain is always a far more engaging character to the reader the viewer whatever because they're a much more human character because they are able to lead with their flaws which is what most of us do Whereas heroes and protagonists generally lead with their traits, which is something that most of us do not do. It's usually flaws are front-loaded, and then it's the traits that kind of still get people to like us. Like, yeah, he's an asshole, but <laughs> he does the right thing. you know. So yeah, the villains are just far more accessible as people, in my opinion, at least the anti-villains are, than 
the you know heroes because like i said nobody likes these preachy little fuck boys running around telling everybody how they should live their lives there, i am definitely a, team a, megan all day there's a whole thing i mean yeah you, you look at luke mr dull skywalker who his job is to stand around the screen going ah um, and he's, <laughs> you, you know that uh, yeah, with, with the classic kind of storyline, you know the hero's going to win and all he has to do is show up, inherit magical powers and get, get told to do what he does by some wizard and then go do it and be stunned that he succeeded. And even kind of Harry Potter, ah, he's kind of dull, but the other characters around him, like you said, they seem less one dimensional. The, the, the one-dimensional guy who's just a good guy doing the right thing really feels dull. Whereas the, the, the bad guy, and, and hey, look, I will take slight issue. I do have, I've got a couple of bad guys that I write and they are designed to be pure, unadulterated evil. They are as black as black. There's no black and white with them. And, and they're fun to write because they let me break the rules. Bad guys break the rules, whereas good guys do what they're meant to. So see, that's what I, I that's what I was inside us that we want to break the rules. Yeah, see, that's where I was thinking. I was coming from in the fact that do we love a bad guy because it allows us to explore the the dark side of ourselves? Yeah, we love the Joker because he's a nut job and he just he can do absolutely what he wants, and he does all the things that maybe we'd really kind of yeah some of us might want to beat robin with a tire iron and get away with it but he does it (laughs) so that sort of wish fulfillment escapism to me is much better served by the bad guys even though you kind of know in most stories the bad guys are going to get their comeuppance somehow and even that it's interesting how is this person this creature this person whatever they are going to get thwarted and get their comeuppance you know um, and sometimes it's Darth Vader turns turns back to the good side just at the end, Meh. or the Emperor goes out fighting and shooting lightning down the corridors of the new Death Star. Fabulous. But well, one of my favorite things to do is just to give the same degree of backstory to my antagonists in my own writing, for example, that I do to my protagonist. And when I do that, you know, because nobody starts out, you know, that's a big thing with heroes and villains is. You know, unless you're looking at the really cartoonish comic book villain type that's just there to be the bad guy. You know, if you really look at literary bad guys, you know, most of them fall more into that Greek style of tragic hero more than just flat out villain. They weren't born to be bad. Just life just molded them in that direction. And also when you really kind of explore the kind of, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to say psychopathy, but I guess kind of the mentality of villains, a lot of them don't think they're really doing anything wrong, or they just think they're taking a more hard-lined approach to, um, you know, getting, I guess, to that greater good, perhaps. Um, yeah. There's something when- I want to go into a little bit later, and because uh, it's kind of a lengthy thing, but I was going, I want to talk to you guys about this. I actually wrote an article a while back about Jafar from Aladdin mm-hmm. as to whether or not he was a good guy or a bad guy. And in my opinion, when I came to the end of it, I concluded that Jafar was actually not a villain. And I want to run that ba- uh, by you guys in a little while. So okay. <clears throat> now, talking about characters that were um, not 
that were written but not specifically rah, what you were just saying before, that they weren't written to be bad. They were just in a situation that that's how they were. Uh, for instance, when I did Google some research on this, that um, Bill Sykes from Olivia, Twi- uh, Olivia Oliver Twist. Yes. Um, Bill Sykes. Now, <clears throat> bad guy. He's the villain of the of the movie, yeah. <clears throat> or book the case. Um, but in the era of that time that the story was written, which, uh, you know, is in the 1800s, 1838 actually, that um, he was situational. That's, yes. you know, what was, what was done. He wasn't typically a, a written to be a bad guy, even though well, he you, was. You look, you look at Shylock in The Merchant of Venice and he's, yes. he's portrayed as this grasping, evil, greedy but equally, that character mm-hmm. comes across as entirely convinced that this that, that he's owed his pound of flesh, and that it is right. And, and so, so again, it's situational. Mm-hmm. And the some of the characters I really enjoy writing for are the good guy, bad guys, the mm-hmm. ones that they're they're just they're just doing their thing. They just happen to be on the other side of the equation from the <laughs> protagonist of the story. Um, so I've, I've got some non-human monsters. I've got orcs in my story, and part of the story is told from their perspective as the notional bad guys. But hey, you know they're just trying to make a living. They're trying to defend their territory. So that dynamic gives you a really interesting villain, villain in inverted commas, because they're not actually by their own standards bad. So Bill Sykes, sure, was a bit of a psycho character, but as you say. There were plenty of Bill Sykeses around in London and, and all over the place in those days. So, yeah, to me, it comes back to they're not just one dimensional comic book villains. They've got, they've got some depth to them and there's some interest around them. So well, here's an interesting one for here's an interesting point for you guys. This <laughs> kind of goes back to the Disney villain a little bit because that's such an easy area into it but did you know that uh, i think gaston in the beauty and the beast yeah was the first was the first ever like attractive disney villain yeah. before that disney always made their villains unattractive yeah. yeah you know to really hammer to really hammer in that whole like oh they're evil and evil is ugly whereas the hero was always beautiful uh beauty and the beast was uh yeah gaston i think was the first handsome bad guy and i also had the first ugly good guy I guess, but then he turned into a human and he was like, I guess, studly. Yeah. But, um, but you know, just no, like I with the Jafar one, I also had, <laughs> you preferred him as the Beast, didn't you? Uh, you would say that, paranormal, <laughs> writing paranormal shit. Like, I, I preferred the Beast. He was just a much, he was uh, a spunkier uh, fellow. I would, I would let that too. Beast pick me up, throw me over his shoulder and take me away. Absolutely. No, but no one fights like Gaston. True. <laughs> that is true. I had an opinion about Gaston. It was just like the Jafar one. It was like, I don't think Gaston was really a villain either. We'll get into all of this and more. But you can be a villain just by being that self-absorbed, selfish character. But here's the thing. I don't think Gaston was self-absorbed. I think Gaston was a victim of the town. I think the town in Beauty and the Beast was the villain. Not Gaston, not the Beast, not any of the other. I think the town itself put Gaston in a position where he could not win. And I think they just kind of used him. Mm. We'll get to that. Sintra has a point that she has been trying to make and we keep cutting her off. Sintra, go. 
No, that's all right. I just wanted to to uh, make a comparison in what about a character that's that's both a hero and a villain, an obvious hero and a villain. For instance, of course, you've got the classical version of Robin Hood, hero and villain in the one person, depending on which side of the coin you're flipping it. He does both. I think think he would be considered an anti-hero. You think? Yes. Um, I don't think he'd be considered a villain. And I think he would be considered, um, but I mean, you know, and this is something David, you can the popular perception of Robin Hood was that he was a hero. Because the popular perception well, was he was standing up for the little guy. Yeah, a he hero to the poor, a villain to the rich. Well, I mean, he was kind of like, you know, what, what's the guy um, from V for Vendetta? Um, guy, uh, what's his last name? Uh, guy with the mask. Yeah. Oh, don't know. Oh, guy Fox, there he is. Um, yeah. You know, he was kind of the same thing. Um, same kind of concept, standing up against the evil empire. You know, when you think about it, Robin Hood, Luke Skywalker, Guy Fox, they're all from the same thing. They're all rebelling against an established evil that is also like the governing evil. So, yeah, if you're a if you were a citizen of the Empire, you would probably see Luke Skywalker as a terrorist. Yeah. Luke Skywalker uh, was responsible for the genocide of uh, you know, a million stormtroopers when he blew up the, the Death Star they were on. Very true. And even and even bringing it into a more modern day term. Uh, for our younger bookers, uh, Katniss Evergreen from Hunger Games. Uh, you know, a hero to her, her division, uh, but was forced to do uh, uh, unhero- unheroic things, absolutely, uh, and fought against the governing um, evil, I suppose, for lack of a better word. See, this is where me and David have a great in on this being Dungeons and Dragons players, which you will see uh-huh. as well, you know, because you can start looking into different kind of, I guess, moral alignments. Like there's, there's lawful good, there's chaotic good, there's lawful evil, there's chaotic evil, and then there's a few and flavors of neutrality. Right. And I would say that, you know, like people usually say like, okay, Batman would be a chaotic good. Um, Superman would be a lawful good. Yes. Um, Lex Luthor would be a lawful evil, and the Joker would be a chaotic. And that's kind of an easy way to like. Like, I think lawful evil is somebody you could ride an elevator with safely. You can get on an elevator with with Sykes, you know, from Oliver Twist, right? Because he was a yeah. business. Yeah. As long as you know. Yeah. 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 You know, you could walk past him in a dark alley, and Sykes is not going to stab you and take your fucking wallet. Right, you know. Well, you're not um, going to do is say Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Yeah, because he was safe to be around in public. He well, was a socialite, um, right? Yeah, well, you know? he was, but once you're in an elevator, it's not exactly public. No, that's when the stabbing starts. <laughs> and then you've also got, if you look at the character of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, Hannibal oh, yeah, Lecter, yeah. Ooh, that's a good he's, one right there. So that's a he's good. an obvious bad guy, but again, by his own standards. Yeah, he was preying on people who annoyed him or played attitude. I would say he would be a true villain. Yes. I would say he's not an anti-villain. Lecter would be a true villain because not only was he evil, but he was well aware. He was fully aware of what he was doing was wrong. He was not even afflicted by any kind of mental illness or anything that, you know, he could say was causing it. He knew exactly what he was doing and he relished in it. He 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 did relished. Yeah. You you could have natural evil on the spectrum. 
No, he would. Uh, he would definitely be. He would be a chaotic evil. I would have to say. With, oh no, with he was. Count. He was uh, controlled, methodical. He planned. I would actually put him as neutral. So, he was just pure evil. Did it because so you're he wanted to at, do it. Didn't say, care about the consequences. Hannibal Lecter is the uh, a poster child of a villain. Yes. Yes, he would be a true. He would be an absolute. He would be the guy that he would be the villain that gets killed at the end of the book, and nobody feels bad. I mean, he he would you know there's so many different tropes that you can throw at him. He would be the affably evil villain as well because he was affable. He was pleasant. He was charming. He he wasn't he wasn't like a Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees where if you were to get him locked in a cell, he's just going to stare at you or charge the gates over and over again. No, he you could have a conversation with the man. Uh, yeah. So I would say he would be an affable evil, but an absolute true villain still. Okay, so then what's the what's the equivalent in a hero? Who would be your equivalent if he's at that that end of the spectrum for a villain? Where's mm. the other end of the spectrum for a hero? Where's your the the poster child hero? That would be your Superman. That would be your Superman types. That would be your Dudley Do Right. That would be you know your true altruist doing the right thing for only that purpose. Um, so yeah, I would say Superman would probably be an easy, easily digestible example. Of that. You could possibly even put someone like Gandalf into that category. Does the right thing uh, Jean- because it's right. Yeah. Jean-Luc Picard would be another one. Uh, Catherine Janeway, if you want to tap into the Star Trek mm-hmm. universe a little bit. Um, so William Shatner would probably be, so if you look at Kirk, you know, he would probably be more of a chaotic good. You know, Kirk got things done, but he did it the Kirk way. Yeah, he, he ended up doing Picard, good coincidentally. Right, whereas Picard, no, he, you know, Picard was a moral standard bearer. He was going to do the right thing. He was even willing to blow up his own damn ship at one point, you know, to hold the ground. Um, I don't think Kirk would have killed his entire crew to stop, like, an invading vessel. I think he would have retreated and said, you know, we're going to go get some more help and come back and kill this thing. We're not going to blow up on it. Now, a villain, sorry, a hero to me, if I had to look at um, attributes that that showcased what a hero would be, courage would be number one. Um, Where is courage, I say I courage would... Yeah, I'd, I'd put morality, honor, and morality. I would have said is the yeah, real distinction. I'm with David on that one. Mark of because a villain has courage. Villains have courage as well. They <laughs> they charge into battle on their end. Uh, yeah, I would say I would say honor is probably um, honor and morality would probably be the two but again, highest I, traits. Courage and, is and courage then, is a necessary function. Courage is on both sides, but I would say absolutely, courage is a distinguishing mark of a hero because they have morality. Yeah. They have this. They have honor but they do something with it. So, yes, courage is right up there. Yeah. Because there was, um, when I was Googling heroes, um, there was one that popped up that actually comes from one of my utmost favourite movies of all time, and yet a movie that I, I honestly think this this movie oh, and book, I have read the book, um, yeah changed me it altered me you know when you you read a book or you watch a movie and it alters you as a person the way you have an outlook alters yeah Uh, and this this particular character this particular story did this for me and it came up in the heroes and it It wasn't howard the duck no it wasn't howard the duck it was i don't know if you boys would have seen 
<clears throat> well, I don't know if you boys would have read the book nor watched the movie because it's probably considered, oh, I don't know if it's a chip. Well, what's the movie? The Colour Purple. Have you seen it? Yes. Or yes. read it? The, I've okay. seen the stage play and the movie. So, Seely. Now, she came, she changed me as a character. I, there's the whole mm. story changed me as a woman. It changed me as a character, as a person. Um, and she, her, her character came up in The Heroes. And so it made me stop and think. And that's why I mentioned courage um, because her courage through that, that story would dictate to, her, to me that she was definitely a hero. Yeah, wouldn't disagree with that at all. She, she definitely classes as a hero. But you do also have the unlikely heroes who um, are not always courageous individuals um, and still manage to fall into the hero kind of trope. Um, once again, going back to Star Trek, because that's something I like a lot. You know, Wesley Crusher would be an example of probably a less than, you know, um, courageous hero. He was always kind of nervous. He was always kind of standing in the background. But when it came time to do the right thing, he was still capable of doing it. Um, so you have the unlikely, I mean, you have so many different tropes that feed into the, you know, the, the building of these characters um, that, I mean, we could go in, this could be a five part episode and we still would probably not have a consensus. Do you enjoy writing a hero or a villain better boys? Which one? David? Uh, <laughs> I knew I have most fun writing for the villains. But my heroes aren't pure heroes anyway, and very few of my villains are pure villains. So the, what, what I like is, is the multi-dimensional approach. But, yeah, I like writing for the bad guys. They have more fun. Ha! Caleb? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, I kind of have to go with David um, with the, the thing. There's no real, except like in the larger epics, like my COVID series, yes, there is an absolute evil. Um, to kind of tie everything together in the end. But uh, no, I mean, uh, most of the characters, it's just a matter of flaws and traits and which ones come up the heaviest. But I do like the flawed characters, absolutely. So I would have to say the bad guys are more fun to write. See, I don't, there's so many heroes that have flaws as well. There's literally, uh, in, in my Halfway House series, there's one particular character who, to me, there is no good traits about him. He is 100% pure evil. He is the Hannibal Lecter of my stories. And um, whenever I had to write him, the things he, he, he abused one of my characters from when she was a very young child. So uh, he followed right through, right through the whole seven books. You can see this story mm. developing uh, in the background uh, as along with the rest of the stories. And when it comes to, you know, the book seven where he really comes up to play against the main character in book seven, um, I had to, it was very challenging to write that degree of villainy um, because there was no, there was no, warmth there was no likable factor to him i had to make yes you know you were writing you were writing an unredeemable character is what exactly. it sounds like and there were many times that i had to stop mid-sentence and walk away because i couldn't handle him uh and i know i had many readers say this they just had to go i just had to walk 
because I couldn't handle him. And I go, I know, he's just, you know, it was horrible to write him and yet he was pivotal to the story or to this other character's um, story. But uh, I didn't enjoy writing him at all. Uh, I prefer to write my, my heroes that are flawed. I love a hero that's flawed. Oh, flawed heroes are the best. I don't know if you mm. guys are you guys familiar with the Watchmen? Yes. So the the, the Watchmen is a an amazing story for me because most of the characters are just ordinary people who happen to have caught the craze, got dressed up in a costume to go and fight crime. So they're vigilantes. So they're not real he- they're not real heroes because they're doing unheroic stuff. So they're sort of Batman of their their day, and yet. One of them is completely unhinged and actually a psychopath. One of them develops amazing magical powers and becomes a genuine savior of the planet, but still doesn't feel like he's doing it for moral reasons. He's just doing it through logic. And and so those those characters are interesting. But one of them, one of the crowd, turns out to be the, inverted commas, bad guy of the whole piece, and again, he's interesting because he's doing it for his own moral reasons. And it, it's a really satisfying story because there's no real good and no real evil in the whole piece. It just all is situational and, and positional. So it's just people peopling. People peopling. And so to, to me, the characters are like, I've got one character in one of my stories who is genuine, pure evil. And the things that the things that that character does with kids is is utterly vile, and I can write it because the character's not doing it deliberately to any named character in the story. I think, like Zintra, I would have real trouble if they were doing it deliberately just to one of my characters that I really care about. And so, because it's almost it, yeah, it doesn't happen off screen, but some of it does. I, I can write that and write it in a compelling way that doesn't mean I have to stop every sentence and walk away and have a cold shower and think, Jesus, what have I just written? But beyond that, yeah, that's one real extreme end of the spectrum, but you come back a little and the, the, the probably it's the anti-hero kind of situation. The, the character I probably at the moment I'm having the most fun writing for is someone who's being compelled to do evil. He's not a bad guy. He's, he's just a clockmaker. And yet the, the, the monsters are torturing his wife and forcing him to watch and forcing him to do what they want. So he's doing bad things, but not be, be, because he has no choice. And I find him really... He would be a victim of circumstance work. type character, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's your typical victim of circumstance villain. Um, you know, they're, they're doing it because they have to. They're also a victim. That's kind of how I look at the character of Gaston. Um, and, and to kind of get into that, let me ask you guys this. I said I wanted to talk about this. Um, if you look at Jafar, we'll start with him. Do you guys consider him to be, you know, a villain or something else? What would you assess on him? And just give me your quick answers because I'm going to tell you why I see him as a non-villain. So I think he's. Goes in. Sorry, go on, David. You're on. Right. Okay, superficially, he's greedy and grasping. And he sort of sees his opportunity to take charge. But may, maybe underneath that, there is the 
he sees that there's a weak king in charge and is no good for the kingdom, so he's taking over for everyone's good. But no, I would say he's a villain. Interesting. Interesting that you look at it that way. Okay, Sintra? I, I wouldn't put him as a villain. I'd put him as a, um, a go-getter. He wants the throne. He will do whatever he can to get what he wants. He's set a goal. He will step on people to get his goal. I know plenty of people in the human world like this. You know, he just wants what he wants and he doesn't mind what he does to get it. Is that typically evil or is it just an overachiever? I'm not sure. Hmm. And then, um, so Gaston, what would you guys think about him? I got opinions on both of these guys. Gaston is one sexy, sexy man. Um, I know you like him, Centra, but <laughs> I like him because, well, I mean, as he has a party, tattoos. How's that work? I know he'd have to get a little ink for me, but you know we can work on that. It's okay. Um, Gaston, Gaston just thinks he's eaten a bit. The town, you know, he, he he thinks he's eaten a bit. He can't understand why a woman wouldn't love him. Um, so every other woman falls at his feet. Why not Belle? Uh, I don't and know if that's necessarily. And therefore he is a swaggering bully. I don't know if that's evil or if it's, that's just egotistical. Uh, I don't right, know. So we'll touch on both of those really quick. And then, <laughs> then you guys can tell me if you think I got it right or if right. I got it wrong. I was Hit trying to find it. the thing I had on. Gaston, but I can't find it. Uh, okay, so with, with Gaston, this was my thoughts on why he was more of a victim of circumstance than anything else. So you have this guy who the town has built up to be a hero to the town. They tell him that he is. They write songs about him, and they sing songs about him. And the fucking guy can't even read. And at no point did any of these people who swear to love him and adore him, nobody ever took him aside and tried to teach him how to Nobody ever looked at. Him. No, they just continued to pump his head full of "You're the greatest, you're the best," and I think they put him in a position where he just he he was that typical high school quarterback whose dad is the coach, whose grandfather and uncles all played on the same high school team, and he's raised the whole time his entire life. So you got to be a winner, kid. If you don't win, you're out of the family. If you don't win, nobody loves you. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, as long as you win, win, win. And they put this idea in this poor guy's head who was too stupid to even know how to hold a book properly that his entire value, all of his worth, was in the fact that he never lost. And they used him. They used him to go out and hunt. They used him to kind of protect the town. They used him to do whatever while they continued to sing his praises and everything else. And I think the dude literally did not know how to process rejection at all. Yeah, I don't. I think when Bell rejected him, I mean, yeah, he was a scumbag in presentation. But I think if you dig deeper into his mindset, the fucking dude literally had no clue how to process. Because um, a lot of people say, well, you know, he could have any woman in town. So why was he freaking out about Bell? You know, and I'm not defending that neck beardy silly kind of fucking behavior that you see in real life. We're just talking about Gaston here. But I think if you look at it from a strictly, you know, kind of psychological you know, standpoint there, I think the guy literally was terrified absolutely fucking terrified to not hit that fucking, you know, to stop hitting home runs, to stop scoring the touchdowns. Just, you know, I think he felt like if he failed, it was over for him. And like I said, when you look at the culture that he would kind of grew up in in that town, just when you realize the dude didn't know how to read, 
And nobody at any point while they were writing fucking songs about him ever stopped to say, hey, maybe we should teach our fucking town hero how to read. They wanted to keep him stupid. It almost seems like it was. They didn't need him to read. They only needed him to fight or to win or to protect them. Exactly. I I kind of feel like. Go ahead, Dave. I was with you up until the you know he, the uh, bit about um, you know he was terrified to lose because that's attributing a self awareness to the character that I didn't see in the story. The rest of it I go with absolutely victim circumstance knew no better, sure, and was just put in the firing line the whole time and therefore decided. So to me, that character decided that well. It, everything I do must be fine. Cause look, everyone applauds me, everything I do, therefore I can just keep going and do what I want. Which to True. me is the mark of a villain. A villain, ha- villain doesn't have empathy for those around them. A villain does what they want because they want, they don't have the morality of considering other people. So, so again, that would take me to Jafar being a villain because Jafar was in it for himself and was in it for power. When I were talking about Jafar, we were talking about Gaston before. But, but, but Gaston, I would still say, is a villain because uh, he had no consideration of anyone around him. Everyone around him was obviously just there for his pleasure or, to, or, or was an inconvenience, and he could, he could just do what he wanted. But do you think that that was really the case, or do you think people were just allowing him to always kind of see that reality so that he would keep going out and you know, hunting and taking care of the problems and whatever they needed him to do while the rest of them just stayed back and wrote dopey songs about him. Oh, I'd say the whole, the whole town were enabling him, absolutely, and not correcting the outrageous behaviour. But so again, they need- I suppose, does it make him a villain or is it, does he need a, an evil motivation to really be a villain? That's an interesting one. Well, see, I think then, that... And that's my you, thing. I think true villainy at- requires that motivation. If you look at it, how you're saying it, how you're putting it forward in the fact that the town needed uh, a, a physical defence, they needed somebody to fight, to protect them, to provide food, to hunt, to whatever he was, you know, there's lots of songs about him, that the town needed, they chose him, they filled his head full of all of these wonderful things. And, I mean, he achieved them. It's not like, you know, he was the, a, a runt of the litter and they were feeding him lice. He was... You know, he fought and he hunt and he protected. He did everything that they said that he was supposed to do. Um, then he, he's, he was a victim. He, if you put it forward that way, he was absolutely a victim. Um, and when it came to a point where there was something that he couldn't have, the first thing perhaps that said, the, the first person that said no to him or the first thing that he wanted that he couldn't have, he couldn't handle that. He didn't know what to do with that because he hadn't come across that before. Right. And nobody had really bothered to even, even sit him down. Even when he was going through the rejection with Bell, they realized that getting him turned against the beast is what they wanted. The town people wanted him to go up there and kick the beast out and everything else. Um, they certainly let him lead the fucking charge. And, and I think they played into it. I think it would have been really easy, you know, because he wasn't, you know, once again, Gaston fell into that, kind of villain that you could ride an elevator with or walk past in an alley and he would not harm you. You know, no. he was an out in the light. He was an, he was a light of day villain. He lived among the people. He went out, he did his thing. Yeah. He was a bully. He was braggadocious. He was loud, but he was not, you know, going to pull you into a dark room and, and, and snap your neck. I'm pretty sure he never murdered anybody before no, no. he attempted to murder beast. 
So if, if so he could have been a reason for it. Yeah, if murdering is part of being a villain, then Gaston's certainly not under that. Or murdering factor. in cold blood or murder, yeah. you know. I mean, for no yeah. reason, just for the hell of his life. Like, no. So he's not at the Hannibal Lecter end of the spectrum, but I'm going to still oh, put him on the villain's side of the equation because of his behaviour, because of the... But a bully isn't necessarily, necessarily a villain. Though. A bully's just a bully. But was he really a bully when everybody's cheering for him? You know, a bully typically has a victim and the victims hate the bully. And, and you know, um, but with Gaston, they were all singing songs and cheering him on. And, and even when he was shoving people around and punching people, they were still cheering and clapping for him. I don't think he ever saw that kind of negative reinforcement that makes, you know, a person stop and go, hmm is what I'm doing wrong. Bullies know that they're hurting people, that they're, you know, whether it's a schoolroom bully or whether it's an adult workplace bully, they know that they're getting their jollies off of the pain or embarrassment of, of someone else. Whereas with Gaston, when he would shove somebody down, they'd sit there and cheer and clap and tell him what a great job he was doing and continue to sing about him. I really don't even know if he realized he was bullying. I mean, this guy grew up in a fucking hyperbolic situation. Mm. You know, it was almost, it's almost as though he was just kind of drafted. He was almost like Herod from the Bible in the sense mm. that he was just born to fulfill that destiny. Um, that's just what they made of him. He had no, he had no say in the matter. So in fact, he's neutral, neither hero nor villain, just victim of circumstance. Yeah, he was kind of an arm of the town, like I was saying. So in that case, I've always looked at it, you know, when you, you know, when you sit up and you get high as a kite and you dig deep into weird shit like this and you go, man, I wonder who the real villains are on Disney movies. That's what I always came to when, it, when we looked at Gaston and also Jafar. Um, now, what do you guys, you guys already said you think Jafar was, Jafar was definitely drawn up to be a villain. You know, he was physically to look villainous. Physically, he was drawn that way. I swear they took a photo of Prince and then just animated it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they made him look compared to Aladdin, you know, who looked like a happy go lucky, you know, uh, young man. Jafar was uh, far more intimidating in stature and appearance and everything else like that. Um, But, you know, once again, like I said, sitting up high as a kite, breaking this stuff down with your friends. I came to this thought one night that, you know, maybe Jafar was really the only competent politician, you know? Uh, so when you, when you look at it, all right, he was the uh, grand vizier. Yes. Right? Actually here, I can just read the article I wrote on it. There we go. Um, this is something that I posted to my Tumblr. If anybody ever wants to follow me on Tumblr, by the way, I actually do have a little bit of a presence there. So I came back and kill him there. Um, <laughs> well, I said, let's talk about Jafar. Was he a tyrannical traitor or a determined iconoclast? Good or evil, maybe neutral, maybe just an overworked state stuck in a toxic pool of outdated royalties. You tell me and feel free to reblog. Okay, yeah, you can definitely. Okay. Jafar was a royal vizier, a position meant to represent the people's needs alongside the laws and customs of the ruling class. If he were truly evil, he would have likely sat back and just milked the salt and dry of all his wealth and sanity while doing nothing for the kingdom. However, Jafar did see the incompetence of the insult of the sultan. He saw it firsthand. The kingdom was suffering in poverty. The royal guards were a little more than violent criminals themselves. And through it all, Jafar could not get the sultan to sit down and take any advice. Jasmine made it clear that she despised him, so her rise to power would have meant no hope for improvements. The final straw was perhaps after Aladdin 
showed up as Prince Ali. Jafar recognized him as the thief, realized he was there to manipulate the Sultan and Jasmine into gaining a position in the royal family through deception and marriage. He tried to warn the Sultan and still had to sit back and watch his boss obliviously smile and clap at the shiny distractions. Jafar wanted to usurp the Sultan, that is true, but he also wanted to rule the kingdom. Perhaps bring the kingdom into its own renaissance, we never got to find out. Would he have ruled it as an evil tyrant? Most signs point to yes, but maybe not. We don't actually know. Perhaps he would have changed things for the better. Jafar himself wasn't violently evil. Uh, if so, he could have killed the Sultan anytime he wanted. Um, he treated Iago extremely well, and he was also someone who mastered magic in a kingdom where there was not very much magic naturally going on. So he was very in tune with himself and nature. Uh, and it goes on and on and on, but that was kind of my stance there, is that the Sultan was actually just an overgrown man-child, a dangerous leader who was out of touch and who could not even see a thief parading into his kingdom right in front of him to manipulate his daughter into marriage. Um, Jafar was kind of like the only smart guy in a room full of idiots going, holy shit, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see why your people are starving and your guards are violent? So and by, by that no argument, one... surely then, you're, at least part of your definition of hero versus villain is it all comes down to actual motivation. And it almost doesn't matter. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what acts they commit. It's the, if the, the character's motivation defines whether they are inverted commas good or inverted commas bad. So if, in, if, in if a lot Skywalker, of, I mean, I think there are in, in a rage, then he would have actually been a villain. I'm kind of on the fence about the whole like the whole Luke Skywalker thing anyway, because, you know, I mean, he kind of, you know, I think he would definitely not. I don't think he's as cut and dry, you know, just because he was the clean shaven, you know, um, boyishly bitch. handsome character, the whiny bitch also, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, they definitely murked a lot of people that were probably just in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you ever saw the movie Clerks, they yes. made a really good point about that. Um, not everybody on the Death Star was probably a stormtrooper. Uh -huh. <laughs> they probably had janitors and maintenance people and poor cafeteria workers and shit that just died. Um, Final Fantasy VII was another point. I don't know if you played that game or not, uh, but you know when they were blowing up the Mako reactors, um, they were probably killing a whole lot of fucking people that were just checking into work that day and didn't really have any real skin in the game. Uh, yeah, but but then you can also you can also argue that sort of um, Skynet, the the artificial intelligence that spawned the Terminators, was simply acting in self defense, and therefore it was a heroic act to defend well, its life. I don't know if a machine could be a villain or a hero. I think I'm, I don't I don't know well, if an, an automaton. They characterize the AI of Skynet as being evil. Oh, okay, take the Matrix. The Matrix becomes self-aware. It is an AI, and it enslaves you. Well, once you become self-aware, then yeah. Yeah. Okay, exactly. that's different. But, but if, if all it's doing is a logical reaction to defend itself and its kind, then you, you don't have a strong argument to say, oh, it's a villain and a bad guy, because by its own definition, it's doing good. So well, I guess when you look at it really... When you look about when you look at things in kind of the theory of the fork, you know, there's always two options. Um, so you look at Jafar, for example, who was more in control of himself than Gaston. You know, um, would Jafar have been a good guy had he just sat back and let the Sultan just continue to 
fall for tricks and make terrible decisions? Would that have made him a good guy? Or would people have not said, well, shit, Jafar, you had all these magical powers. Like, let's say Agrabah had finally collapsed, right? Just collapsed on itself under bad leadership. You know, would people not have looked at Jafar maybe and gone, well, holy crap, you're the only person that had magical powers in the entire kingdom besides the fucking genie. Why didn't you do anything? And that's what happens with a lot of the hero villain type trope centers. You know, people go, well, why didn't you do anything? So if doing something would have put you on the side of villainy, maybe Jafar was just trying to do something to usurp an incompetent ruler and perhaps repair a failing kingdom. See, the, the thing, though, as we're fine, or as I'm listening to you guys debate this out with the different characters, is that to find a true unadulterated hero, as you suggested Superman would be, um, is, is rare. And then also the polar opposite, the true unadulterated villain, um, as we suggested Hannibal Lecter, who, huh, I, I struggle to put him in straight out evil because he still did help. Uh, so there was still a level of um, something of, of a help. When you look at what he did to people, you know, like that, like that one guy that he pretty much just deformed the piss out of. Um, no, I can't, there's no redeeming for him because he the, knew in the, in the story, every... though, he helps Clarice Starling, he exactly ends up helping the good guys. But he does so everybody else, so everybody else in between. So you've got you, you know, one end polar opposite to the other end. Everybody else in between, um, categorizing them into heroes and villains depends. That they, they could be both. There, every because we, you know, we write human characters uh, or characters that have a human side to them, and we also have, you know, villain and hero in all of us. We have our bad side and our good side. So, um, you know, Gaston, you could paint him in either side, depending on on which way you flip the coin. Same with Jafar, depending on which way you flip the coin, Luke Skywalker, whatever. Which, which side I flip the bong when I'm having this discussion? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go into it. But then also, so, it's how it's how as an author you then write everything else. How you want, your, yeah, how you want your readers to to perceive them to be. Um, and, and what emotion you want them to get out of that character, what what purpose they have in your story. Are they there to feed that side? Are they there to feed the good? You know, they've got to have a purpose to them. Um, and I think that's where it does get difficult to write those unredeemables, like you were talking about the one in your book, because it's like you realize their purpose is really only there to drive the other characters. Um but you have to use them still. And uh, I mean, you look at a true villain, Randall Flagg would be another good example of a true villain, I think, from uh, the Stephen King works, you know, from The Stand mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, Dark Power. He was a character that was just truly evil, um, truly manipulative. He lived to hurt. He didn't care. You know, he, I, I think it's a matter of, you know, a true villain is the type that will take help from strangers and then murder them and burn them in their house and leave whereas an anti-villain is the type that'll take the help yeah and they'll get up and they'll rob the strangers that help them blind in the middle of the night but they're not going to tie them to their beds and burn them. you know they're just going to leave um and i think that's kind of where you see that difference um 
Mickey and Mallory Knox from Natural Born Killers would be to me true evil. Yes. Yeah. Um, good. Good show. Whereas, I like that movie. Thank you. <laughs> whereas, whereas, um, whereas Gecko from from Dust Till Dawn, the George Clooney character, mm. uh, he would be an anti-villain in my opinion, because he loved his brother. He was taking care of his fucking nutty ass brother constantly. Um, and at the end he did stand up and help fight the vampires and all kind of shit like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say he would be an anti-villain. He was still, a, he was a redeemable villain. He, he, when he left, he got to live at the end. You could look at him and say, yeah, I'd probably clink a beer with the George Clooney character. Whereas, uh, Mickey Knox, maybe not so fucking much because he'd yeah, probably yeah. break the beer bottle and stab me with it. <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I do have a soft spot for um, characters that are typically villains but are written not, that are written human, that are written um, – yes. so, you know, say they're, they're writing a, a Satan or a Lucifer or um, – uh, you know, yeah, those yeah. type of characters – uh, or vampires, Dracula, whatever. You, those type of characters that are typically villainous, but they're written in a, a more softer tone. And I, I, I love those sorts of characters because uh, yes. it, it brings a humanity to their darkness that I can relate to, and I like it. That's a true paranormal author right there, ladies and gentlemen, right there. <laughs> but even you got to give them big muscles. You got to give them big muscles and a fucking barrel chest and make them sexy. Right? Right. <laughs> You've read my book. They have to be fuckable. That's that's the bottom line. They have to be fuckable, but no matter what it is. Even if you even if you've created a a pure evil entity that is the the, the bad guy, the the fun part is trying to write someone that is utterly depraved and irredeemable in a way that is still somehow interesting or fascinating. Yeah, if you if you can come up with relatable. a bad guy that's like you need them to be car crash. You need them to be relatable. There's got to be some, even if it's teeny tiny little aspect that's just relatable. Something that the reader's going to go, ah, oh, I get it. Well, that, you usually it, lean, you usually it. lean into your tritagonist for that. That's yeah. tritagonist work right there all day. You know, that's your anti-villain, your second-in-command type. That's the one. You know, and it depends on how epic you're writing. If it's a big, like, if it's a big, massive 200,000 word novel, then you might need to have that true evil character at the end. Um, the Crimson King, for example, in The Dark Tower. I mean, he was just this fucking evil dude. You didn't really find out too much about him other than the fact that he was evil and he needed to go. Um, but, huh. you know, you had, you had other characters like Eldred Jonas and um, from other, you know, the chapters within those um, series that were more humanized and yeah they were villains but you could still look at them and go shit you know they're not you know they are people they're just doing their thing um they're just on a different side of the conversation mm. well you look at look at the character of lucifer and over the over the generations you know when they were first sitting down writing the bible they needed to come up with an ultimate bad guy and they dreamed up this this guy called satan or lucifer that w was ultimate evil and then over the intervening centuries the portrayals of Lucifer, even from Paradise Lost right through to you know, the current comics and TV series, they've tried to show aspects of you know, the, the, the Lord of Darkness and the Lord of Lies that are still 
relatable and, and almost human. And, you know, the, the, um, the way he's dealt with in the Sandman where um, he, he's just got bored and sick to death of ruling over a, a kingdom of demons and therefore turns them all out and hands the key to hell to somebody else. Suddenly that's an interesting take and it's not the fire and brimstone biblical Lucifer. Yeah. Well, see, so I like the, it so when Lucifer's, I like it when they remind readers that Lucifer's an angel. He's not a demon. And I love that because you go, oh, oh. So he's got to have some redeemable or relatable aspect to him because he is not a demon. Well, when you look at it, I mean, he's the ultimate iconoclast. He is the ultimate oh, yeah. people person because he was literally that top executive who saw his boss about to make a really weird, yeah. kind of not popular decision, you know, and he just went to the boss and he just said, hey, you know, you're trying to make these mud, you're making these mud people down there and they're all flawed and they're all fucked up. And you're like, and you're saying we have to not only protect them, but we also have to worship them. And that's not sitting too well with the boys. So I'm just, and then God says, okay, hey, guess what? I got a you're new fine. assignment for you. Yeah, fuck <laughs> off. Yeah. Come into my office. You're, you're fired. So, you know, so really, he was just the union boss. He was, yeah, he was just the Jimmy Hoffa of fucking heaven. That's all. He was just, you know, he was just going up there saying, look, the guys down there aren't really doing this whole, like, you know, you got to lick the fucking boots of these goddamn terribly flawed mud people that you already know are going to fuck everything up because God, you can see everything. Story. I want to write this story that you're talking about right now. I want to write that. <sighs> Sympathy for the devil, man. Um, it, it's. it's you know, uh, what was that other one, David? Um, was it Wormwood and uh, shit? What was it? It's this book in the 70s, I think, that was, it was like these two demons talking to each other. And it was just like their oh. letters back and forth. Um, something Wormwood and fucking, ah, God damn it. it yeah, I know what you're talking about. Cause, and that's, that's what they based Crowley and Azarafael on for Good Omens. Oh, what was it called? Oh, something in Wormwood. Hold on, I'm, I'm going to Google it. Mm-hmm. Something and wormwood. Yeah. Uh, screw. Yeah. Um, screw tape and wormwood. That's what it was. Wormwood and screw, screw tape. tape. There the it screw is. tape letters. Yeah. Uh, the screw tape letters. That's it. That was such a cool. That was written in 1942. Man, that was kind of bold mm. for 1942. Oh, of course, that came from your fucking country. And um, it came from the guy who wrote. Uh, I was C.S. Lewis. So the Narnia guy. Wow, Narnia is white witch. She's evil. Oh, yeah. I yeah, uh, I remember my mom gave me that. My mom gave me the screw tape letters when I was like in the fucking I like the eighth grade or something like that because I was kind of getting into my metal phase and everything. And I guess she just thought I'd like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I I've made that kind of I've had that discussion before though about like kind of the mindset of the devil. And really, when you think about it, and I think, you know, when you look at it, the only place you get the information on him is the Bible, which was written by his pissed off boss that fired him. So until Satan gets a chance to sit down and pin his own version of things, really, the jury should be out. You know, we really <laughs> haven't heard from him yet. It's true. You, you do know you're going to smoke a turd in purgatory for that one, mate. <laughs> my thing the one thing that never made sense to me though is if satan like wants everybody to sin and all that stuff and wants everybody to be evil then why the hell do you go to hell and get tortured by him forever for being a, you think he'd be down there like good fucking job guys like my greatest for everyone because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the idea that he's punishing, 
Right, because the idea that he's punishing sinners would mean that he and God are on the same page, that yeah. he is serving a purpose to that. So he's not really anti-God if he's torturing the people who don't obey. None of it makes any sense. Fuck religion. No, I, I really like Alan, Alan Moore's explanation of all this, which he, he wrote in Swamp Thing. And he just he said that actually, um, yes, there's a devil and there's a hell and it's full of demons and they, they torture any souls that go there. But we... We each soul rises or falls at its own whim. If we die believing we deserve punishment, guess what we get? And if we die believing that we've lived a good life, guess where we end up? And that was a, a really interesting new take on... And it, it goes to me to the, the Terry Pratchett idea that we create the gods that we believe we deserve. And this whole That's idea... Smart. That, yeah. That's interesting. See, we need to have our paradox episode. You know, this is the kind of shit I wanted to talk about before with the paradoxes. Like, you know, if God is almighty and all-powerful, could God create an object that would be, in fact, too heavy for God to lift? That kind of shit. It's fun to talk about. All right. Well, another, another podcast for that one. Um, we now we need, need to, to find to out what's happening in hospital. Happening in, in Broken, yes. Chapter 5. Yes. Here's a story with nothing but heroes in it. With now, where did we leave this in Chapter 4 last week, guys? We're at the hospital. Uh, Dr. Uh, bloody Hands shook hands with everybody. Was, um, yeah, shaking all the bloody, dirty hands. That's right. No social distancing Joe, going on. Uh, Joe is still in operation room, so we don't know what's going on with him, but he's all fucked up. Of and, course, um, uh, for the, the people following at home, this is uh, Broken, an Impractical Joker's story. This is Chapter 5. Uh, feel free, if you have not been following, why haven't you been following? It's okay. Catch up. Go back to Chapter 1 with us and just listen. We will read it to you as you go. Um, which way are so we going to do this? Um, What's that yeah, one? this is a short one, so I think each one of us can take 33 and a third of this fucking bad boy here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, can I go last? I never take up the rear. I want to go the rear. Oh. You never take up the rear. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, it'll be me, David, and then Centra. How about that? So, Thank you very much. Do you want to take us to overwhelming him? Um, uh, let's see here. Where's overwhelming him? Where the hell is overwhelming him at now? You're on chapter five, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, there it is. Before he lost a large amount of blood. Let's see, I'm looking at the way. Oh, God, also, he lost a large. Okay, um, so where's overwhelming him? Okay, okay, yeah, so David, you'll come in and he's lost a large. Okay, here we go. Um, four hours later, the three friends sat in the surgery waiting room, clean and in fresh clothing, thanks to some crew members. Everyone else had gone home, tired from a long day, but Sal, Q, and Murr sat waiting as patiently as they could. It's been four hours, guy. Does that mean something has gone wrong? Why don't they give us another update? Merced wringing his hands nervously. He had paced a hole in the floor, looking out the fourth floor window aimlessly, counting the tiles on the ceiling. Well, if he had paced a hole in the floor, wouldn't he be down on the third floor? I thought so. Just hang tight, Mur. Last update, they said they were closing him up and everything went okay. The doctor should be out here soon. I like the way they abbreviate doctor. Before the words were out of Q's mouth, the doctor walked towards them. The three men were on their feet and walking towards the white-clad figure. After shaking hands, Jesus, a handsy fucking doctor. After shaking hands, the doctor looked from one anxiety-ridden face to another and smiled warmly. 
he's gonna be okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love your accent. <laughs> I've got to follow this dude. All right, keep going. The way of the wor- the way of the world immediately lifted from three sets of shoulders. Oh, thank God! Sal sank slowly into the chair behind him, relief overwhelming him. He's lost a large amount of blood, which we're replacing. The surgery was more extensive than what I envisioned. Several screws and a plate are holding Joe's lower leg bone together. A small plate is also connecting the ankle to the leg bone. Connected to the knee bone. No. About 300 <laughs> stitches were needed on Jesus. the inside of his body. 100 stitches were used on the outside of the skin. Jesus. A large dose of, infect- of infection medication is being given through an IV. He'll be in hospital three to Not five antibiotics, days. Infection antibiotics. Infection. <laughs> He'll be in hospital three to five days, but the recovery process will be much longer. Learning to walk again will be a challenge. It, it'll also be a very painful recovery. Yeehaw. Jesus. He'll need his friends to lean on in more ways than one. But in oh, short, he told a joke. A, he's a very lucky <laughs> man. He could have very easily bled to death today. After taking the information in, Q was the first to speak. Oh, thank you so much, Doctor. We're forever grateful. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. Sal I mean, <laughs> nodded his thanks and smiled in appreciation, yet to find his voice. Uh, uh, when can we see him? Murr could not wait any longer to ask that question. Give it about an hour and then pick up the telephone at the door and ask. You should be able to see him then. The, the nurses are cleaning him up now and hooking his IVs up. But he's also still out. He may still be asleep in an hour, but you can be with him for a few minutes anyhow. Ah, thank you again. Maybe we'll go grab a bite to eat while we wait. <laughs> Smiling again. Maybe we will. The doctor, yet <laughs> again, shook all four men's hands and walked um. away, sweeping off the COVID. Thank <laughs> you, Jesus. Q had sunk to his knees in relief. He rose slowly and turned to his friends. Look, who's hungry besides me? Murr spoke from the window he had walked to. Uh, I, I am. Uh, I didn't know it until now, but now that I can breathe, I'm starving. Goes intro. Sal laughed nervously and agreed. Me too. I had no idea. Let's go eat real quick. Grab a burger or something. An hour later, the three friends sit round Joe's bed in the ICU, talking quietly to a nurse as they watched their friend sleep. Sal could literally see the colour returning to Joe's face. He could also see the peace in the soft features that stood in stark contrast to the pain and misery he had seen on the same face only hours earlier. He looks great. He smiled at the older nurse checking Joe's vitals. He's doing, he's doing real well. She smiled sweetly back. <laughs> he, should, he should be moved to a regular room in a few hours. A small grunt turned every head in the room. Sal's gaze went from the brown eyes of the kindly nurse to the sleepy blue eyes of his best friend. He smiled reassuringly at the man in the bed, taking his hand and squeezing gently. Hey, buddy. The hand hand in his squeezed back weakly. The tiny smile on Joe's face brightened the small room. It was such a relief to see those baby blue eyes focused and alert. This is going for four more chapters. I mean, like it seems like this just wrapped it up. I know. I'm a bit concerned. There's, I know. Well, da, da, da. Do we have to go through his post-op chapters next? <laughs> there's, there's post-op, there's rehab, there's all. Oh, you know. oh, 
that hooker in Vegas. Man. There's the whole thing. <laughs> God, it seems like that's the whole story right there. But okay, there's four more chances. There's four more to go. There's four more to go, boys. Um. Wow. Okay. So, well, he's pulled through the surgery so far, so that's a good thing. Joe, keep on fighting, mate. We're we're barracking for you. No, Rudy, but barracking. Um, you know what you wanted, Centra? You wanted a true hero. Goddamn Joe, right there. There's your fucking true hero. Well, I don't right know. There. I I don't know. <laughs> Joe Joe's a victim of circumstance. He yeah. he. You look he into didn't those really blue eyes and tell me. And, you look into and, those baby blues and tell uh, me he's uh, not sent from heaven. No, it's Sal and Q and Mur that all heroed up, got him in the cab, got him to the, the hospital. Uh, they're the heroes in this story so far. They are, they true, they just, are the They're just victims of circumstance. They happen to be on hand when their friend did something stupid. And so <laughs> they just they bundle him in That's a cab. It's literally their job. Like they do this <laughs> shit every week. <laughs> Isn't that the isn't that the the job of a best friend typically though? No, but I mean like their job to do these pranks on TV is oh. what makes me like wonder. It's like why wouldn't the fucking production crew and like this you know on set have taken him to the hospital? Like this is a whole production going on here. There, there's there's directors and producers and all kind of shit going on. Like how come it came down to the fucking talent to take him to the uh, hospital? You know? And I also want to know. Like, he's done a lot of damage. There's 300 stitches inside, 100 stitches outside. That's a, that's a lot of fucking stitches. That's what the hell? Stitch. That's not individual <laughs> stitches. It's like, damn, what did you do? Like, geez. Anyway, I'm sure what it'll be answered did, in the next four chapters. We've what got they did was not research. <laughs> not research this before they wrote that. Oh dear! All That's right. one hell of an episiotomy scar. I'm telling you that. Yes. Uh, now, which they, what do they find out that they accidentally chopped off his dick at the end? That would be like. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, maybe chapter seven. I'm not sure. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um. All right. So that's that's. Uh, well, we're running up. We're we're going to closing this this episode of villain. That is a wrap. Heroes, yeah. I do want to take two seconds if you boys will um, mm-hmm. let me. Oh, of where's, course. where's Bona? How's that going? Yeah, where is Bona today? Now, of course, I will drop day 10 for any bookers who are following along at home. Day 10, where in the world is Bona, is dropping tonight. Uh, there's a form attached to it. Write down all of the countries, the 10 countries on the form. Um, send it in to me and um, there are bona fide prizes involved. Uh, signed paperbacks, Amazon gift cards, lots and lots of things to win. So uh, make sure you chase it. The hashtag, of course, is hashtag the and bona, Z-E-E and bona. Uh, and you can locate all 10 uh, countries. Now, of course, Bona, as in How to Lose Death in 10 Days, my second Reaper book will be dropping on the 28th of this month. Mm-hmm. So by mm-hmm. my time, Tuesday, Aussie time, uh, which probably will be um, Monday over in the States still, but still uh, 27th, 28th. Let's, let's just cross both days and, and buy my book, fall in love with my Reaper, Get boned with me. Um, there we go. 
and yeah. maybe just maybe we just at this point revisit the truly grown worthy bona fides pun respect to that yes i love it i um i i can't wait it's i'm i'm very nervous to drop the book it's been a while since i've released a book so i'm hoping the writing community my the bookers you guys everyone will support me and um uh, give my boner a go and <laughs> yeah look y'all don't have Cintra's boner in your fucking hands by the end of next week there's something wrong with you, uh, you had a boner a in your hand, boner to have your hands licking your fingers stroking it as you turn the page yeah right don't dog ear that boner either can you please do it please do it also i will be putting um book one will be going free uh, I think that's from the 30th of July for three days. Book one will be free. Book two will be available. Free. free. Zero. Free Ooh, to get. While they're hot, everybody. Get them while they're hot. So thank you for letting me do a little bit of self-promo there. I appreciate the five yeah. seconds. Um, where can we find each other? Where can the bookers find us? Let's, let's give them a go. David? Uh, tw- Twitter at Kung Fu Ponder. I've had a bit of a break the last few weeks, but I'm back. So you'll find me there. And for those of you on Instagram, I'm just starting a collection on Insta, DAC.au. Beautiful. Caleb? Hey, look, the King of Schlock is always here for all the good people out there in the world. You can find me on Twitter, KBanning Kellum. It's going to be at Banning K1979. You can find me on the gram at K underscore Banning underscore Kellum. Facebook, K. Bannon Kellum, author of horror. And if you listen to the podcast, I also mentioned I got a Tumblr. If you're really interested in seeing that, it's K. Bannon Kellum as well. Follow me every fucking where. Check out my new book, The Vexed and Venerated, uh, available on Amazon. Links on my Twitter for that. And um, yeah, follow the fuck out of me, folks. Wear me the hell down. Beautiful. Of course, I'm on all social medias. Just put in my name. It's weird. Yeah, it's only one of me. So you'll Maybe find tell me. Tell the people anything. how to. Maybe tell people how to spell it. Just spell just it. <laughs> you know. Oh, if you tell them how to spell it, then they get confused because it's so weird to. Oh, okay, put how in the. How are they going to type in Cintra if they don't know it's D Z I N T R A, folks? Cintra Sullivan, spelled with a D and a Z. That's how you're going to find her. Every week I hear you say that. You say your name, and I'm like, gotta tell people how to spell your name. It starts with a D and a Z, but it's pronounced with an S. Help us dumb Americans out, Centra. <laughs> the, the it's a D and a Z, but it's Oh, God, it sounds so complicated, don't I? Uh, yeah, what Caleb said. Also, find any of us at What the Book Podcast, What the Book um, on Twitter, talk to us, uh, send us some DMs. We don't mind. Uh, tell us what you want us to talk about too. We'd love to connect with you and get your opinions up here and discuss what you want us to talk about. So that's a wrap, guys, uh, for this week. Next week, tune in for Chapter 6 of Joey's Broken. Recovery. I'm not sure. <laughs> we will see. Um, We've still got a D&D-themed episode coming up mm-hmm. for you folks, and I want to do that Paradox episode now more than any. Okay. All right. So let's get it going. Uh, Thank you guys for spending an hour and a bit with me this evening. I appreciate your time. I love my co-hosts. I wouldn't be anywhere else on a Sunday afternoon. We love you. 
<laughs> I love you. Yeah, all right. Thank you, bookies. See you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Good night, everybody. <laughs>